You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 720. The easiest thing to do on earth is not to write. William Goldman. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur Method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Well, guys, today we are going to go down the psychology rabbit hole for screenwriters. We have today Professor William Indick, who wrote the book Psychology for Screenwriters, How to Build Conflict in Your Stories. And man, I got to tell you, this conversation was pretty intense. We went down so many rabbit holes, so many different roads on how you can use different psychologies within your character, psychological disorders that you can infuse into your characters to create just natural conflict and analyzing some of the greatest characters in movie history and what their psychological makeup was and and stories. And it was just a really great, great conversation. So I can't wait for you to listen. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with William Indick. I'd like to welcome the show, Bill Indick, man. How you doing, Bill? Good. How are you? I'm good, my friend. I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to dive into the world of psychology and how it affects uh, writers and screenwriters and characters and psychoanalyzing some of our favorite films and characters, which I, I do on the show often as a, uh, as a non-professional, uh, without a PhD, as I'm sure you've run into much in your life. Um, but, um, before, uh, before we get started, what, uh, made you decide to write a book about psychology for screenwriters? Um, so it's, this is going back to uh, 2003, so almost 20 years ago, and I was just starting out as a psychology professor, and I was teaching classes like abnormal psychology and theories of personality where you have to you know, get into the nuts and bolts of psychological theory, Freud, Erickson, Jung, all those guys, and I was fi- finding it hard to sort of get these very old theories to be relevant to my students, and uh, I, 
you know, my idea was, okay, well, let me take something that I find fascinating and interesting and some, and use it as an example to apply it to. So I started doing little short film analyses in class as examples of these classic personality uh, theories. And it really worked very well. So I said, oh, you know what? I should get a textbook on like how to do, you know, mo- uh, basically a psychology uh, uh, film book. Uh, but none existed. There was really none uh, uh, about specifically applying psychoanalysis to film analysis. So I wrote the book. And one of the people that I shopped the book around to was uh, Michael Weiss and Michael Weiss Productions. And he said, this is a great idea, but we write books for filmmakers. We write books for screenwriters. Uh, and they, they wanted a, n- not an academic text, but more sort of a practical guide. So I said, okay, <laughs> you know, just take the same theories, the same applications, and just turn them into uh, uh, something that would be helpful for screenwriters. So instead of you know saying, okay, as you analyze a film, think about this, saying, as you write a film, <laughs> think about this in more sort of analytical ways. So can you um, like do a psychoanalysis on a genre? Like, cause I know you wrote another book about, you know, the psychology of Westerns and things. Mm-hmm. Can you break down like general overall psychologies of specific genres? Are there like key things that are in most of films in those certain genres? Absolutely. Um, and that's one of, so um, Psychology for Screenwriters is going into a second edition, and I had to add three chapters. And basically, those three chapters are going to be based on these books I wrote about uh, psychoanalysis uh, for specific film genres. Mm-hmm. So in any genre, you're going to have basic character types, which in psychology we'll typically call archetypes after Carl Jung's theory. So in the Western, you have this sort of uh, uh, cast of characters that, basically reappear in every film. Uh, You have, you know, the cowboy hero, who's oftentimes an anti-hero. You have a villain character who's usually, uh, quote-unquote, a dude. Uh, The the word dude refers to an Easterner who's out west. I don't know Mm -hmm. how it became just a sort of general term for (laughs) a person. But uh, so uh, uh, the the villain is usually a dude from the east or a banker or a railroad person or an evil cattle baron, somebody who wants to own the land rather than live in it uh, in a more sort of... um, wholesome or uh holistic uh, in a way that right. respects the land yeah right. so uh yeah so you have the you have the the quote-unquote whore with a heart of gold character and then the nice sort of virginal school mom character and all those characters exist as archetypes uh within this specific mythology that we call the west uh and the, the archetypes change they grow up and they you know become darker usually but they don't really change the same basic uh motivation which is, is redemption usually for the uh for the hero um that stays the same and you could do the same thing with horror movies and psych- psychological uh, science fiction um musicals comedies every genre exists because there are these archetypal characters and archetypal themes that just repeat themselves over and over again so yes you can certainly do a psychoanalysis of a genre and i've been doing it and i'll do it again <laughs> so okay so let's break down let's say uh the action genre which is probably one of the most popular genres uh, sci-fi and, and uh, sci-fi and action are both very popular. What yeah. are you know? Action is a very broad genre, uh, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, in your from your point of view, what are some of the kind of like uh, archetypes that are constantly in uh, psychoanalyzing that genre? So I would say if we're talking uh, about American films mm-hmm. and. That's really probably, I don't know about you, but certainly I'm not particularly comfortable talking about any other <laughs> right. type of film other than American films. Uh, but um, uh, 
the, the Western was incredibly influential and really dominated the whole film market for that whole period going from the sort of mid 40s to the early 60s. -hmm. So what we call the action genre is really just something that evolved out of the Western genre. People saying, hey, maybe we can make an exciting film with guns and chases and all that exciting stuff happening, but not set in the West. So people started coming up with different types of uh, action movies. Um, But it it really basically is the same as the Western genre. So you have the same basic kind of hero, this sort of slightly dark character with a good heart who finds it hard to fit in in his environment because of his own personal code of honor that doesn't necessarily... um, mix with uh the hypocrisy of modern day and you basically you take this western character and you put him in the city and you give him a badge and uh you know a a three-piece suit and all of a sudden he's this the sort of archetypal cop hero you have the buddy cop movie that is basically just uh extension of the western genre and i would say in this in the 60s and 70s and 80s when American culture was getting kind of sick of the Western. We saw a lot more uh, action movies based on this cop hero Mm -hmm. uh, archetype, who's essentially the Western hero. Then starting in the in the 70s, but really getting a lot of traction in the 80s, um, began to see action um, action movies based more on classical superheroes from sort of ancient myth. Like uh, uh, people that we call superheroes, people who aren't just regular men, you know, with who are very quick with a gun, but people who who actually have superpowers like God. So Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. And that is, you know, a, a rather different type of story. Uh, and that calls upon these ancient uh, patterns of the hero that go all the way back thousands and thousands of years uh, to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, the ancient Judeans and Christians, um, uh, the classical hero. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, So so to understand that character, uh, we really have to kind of uh, study some Joseph Campbell, some Carl Jung, and move away from the very, very specific American action hero that's basically just an offshoot of the Western hero, the cowboy. So the yeah, because I was going to ask you next is like, well, obviously the the dominant genre in in popular movies is superhero. I mean, yeah. it, it is it's taken over all other genres. Uh, and do you believe in your in your opinion? Do you think what Spielberg said is true where we're going to we're going to get tired of superhero movies eventually yeah. in the next 15 years like we're just going to be like it's over let's move on to something else just like the western was like the western mm-hmm. but you know sci-fi's always been sci-fi action's always been action like there's I don't but the specific genre of superhero do you think that that's going to eventually happen yeah, you reach a point with any medium, a point of saturation where people have just had enough and they need something else. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the archetypes change. Again, people got sick of Westerns in the 1960s when nine out of 10 TV shows were Westerns and something right. like six out of 10 feature films released every week was a Western. People got sick of it and it wasn't as relevant in a time when people were less gung-ho about being American in the 60s. Yeah. Um, so what happened, two things happened. The genre itself, became darker and more realistic in an attempt to kind of better reflect the American spirit. And that really kind of killed the Western for a while. Um, uh, But the other thing that happened was 
the setting changed and we took the same basic characters and just put them in a different setting. Um, so I, w- I would say probably some, something similar is going to happen with superheroes. Whereas, uh, we're seeing it already. We're seeing the characters get darker and darker and darker. Um, and at one point, it reaches a point where a character gets so dark that nobody wants to identify with that character anymore. It's too dark. Like some of the Western characters we saw in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, so, yeah, we'll reach that the point of saturation where people just are sick of it. And also we'll reach the point of where the character itself, the main character gets too dark and it's going to have to change. Uh, what will it become after that? Well, you never really know, but it's essentially it's the same basic archetype, whether he's in a, it's a war movie or a Western or action movie or a superhero movie, basically the same characters with different settings. It, Take uh, George Lucas, you know, he came around at a time when the Western was really dead. And he said, oh, what if I just take a Western and set it in outer space? And instead of lightsabers, it's like samurai swords. You know, instead of samurai swords, it, uh, mm-hmm. they're lightsabers. And he took a spa- your basic Western plot, mixed a few things in it, and came up with Star Wars, which captured everybody's imagination, you know, for you know, decades and decades and decades. And not many people complained, oh, this is just a Western set in outer space. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Right. And I mean, I mean, he picked, obviously he picked, he, he, he took seven samurai and, and yeah. uh, hidden fortress specifically. And, and which are, are basically, uh, Westerns. I mean, Westerns. samurais are, yeah. Sa- samurai films are Westerns and, Japanese you know, magnificent, yeah, yeah. And magnificent seven and all that stuff. And it's so funny because the, 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 uh, the success of the latest incarnation of star, which was the Mandalorian, on the streaming service, it is as Western as you get. I mean, it is. Yeah. It goes back to the core roots of Star Wars, which was mm-hmm. a Western, hardcore Western, but in space. And I mean, it's actually, I think Mandalorian's even more Western than the original Star Wars is. It's a straight up Western. When you see it, you have this character who is the quintessential cowboy hero. He sort of comes in out <laughs> of the wilderness. He's in this frontier territory where every, everything's kind of dark and scary, yet he has his own personal code of honor mm-hmm. and he has this sort of path towards redemption. It's it, it's it's the, the most traditional Western I've seen in a very long time. I, and only the setting is different. Exactly. And then the whole long wolf and cub. Uh, story with him and Baby Yoda uh, is also yeah. it's just a complete callback to Japanese westerns. Yeah, and uh, uh, the Yoda, uh, the Baby Yoda, uh, we've seen that before in westerns. There was specifically there was a film called Three Godfathers, a mm-hmm. classic western that was remade a bunch of times, and probably the classic version was directed by John Ford with um, uh, John Wayne in it. But the basic premise is you have these three uh, cowboy outlaws and they're on the run and they run into um, a, 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 what do you call it, a wagon train that's been attacked by Indians. Mm-hmm. And the only survivor is a mother and her newborn baby and the mother dies. So now they have to take care of this baby. And so you have these three really tough guys, like three men and a baby. Oh, you read, yeah, you read my mind. I was like, it's three men and yeah. a baby. <laughs> And uh, but their whole struggle is to you know deliver this baby to New Jerusalem to this town, and they have to fight the wilderness, fight Indians, you know, uh, 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 and go through all that. And that so uh, yeah, Baby Yoda is directly from that. But uh, I mean, it, it, when I was watching The Mandalorian, I was thinking I should probably write something about this because every episode not only is a very traditional Western, but every episode is based on kind of a classic Western movie, um, mm-hmm. like, like Three Godfathers or The Searchers. Um, 
you know, I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but but I was very very much impressed by uh, Jean Favreau, uh, who who's, who did a lot of the writing and all the mm-hmm. directing, saying like mm-hmm. this guy knows his westerns and is really applying it in a great way. And the wonderful thing about t- taking a genre like the western, which has very established archetypes and plots and characters, and just changing the setting, is that you don't have to make the characters as dark as they would normally be. Because while people are sick of the sort of uh, uh, cowboy hero in the white hat and the white horse, Mm -hmm. the perfect character who's so good that he's unbelievably good, people did get sick of that in the 50s and 60s. But when George Lucas put him in outer space, we have, you know, Luke Skywalker, who is again, this classic, very pure white hat, white costume character. Uh, Meaning, so if you change the setting, you can go back to the original uh, template of the genre. Um, So that's kind of a useful thing to know. And really, when you said the whole white hat character, um, in the superhero genre, uh, arguably the the godfather of all superheroes, which is Superman, Mm -hmm. is very difficult to write for because he is Mm -hmm. that white hat character. And at a certain time in American history and world history, that was acceptable. And then the 70s, when Christopher Reeve showed up, it was fine. You, you wanted that kind of, you know, apple pie kind of character. But as time has gone on, he seems so unrealistic that they had to, like, try to darken him up. I'm like, but that's not the character. You can't. That's why Batman has been. He just stays because he's he's yeah. such a realistic character. I mean, to a certain extent, obviously. Um but much he's more a realistic. realistically dark character. He's a realistically dark character and he's very vulnerable and all this stuff. Where when you're writing for Superman, you're writing for a god. And that was the problem with um uh ancient Greeks. Uh it, you know, in the myths of ancient Greeks, like well, they had to give them human frail- frailties to be able to write a story about them because if they're just there's no power there's no power that can stop them, then why are we watching this? There's no conflict. Yeah. Well, when you have a character who's super powerful, uh, the only person who can defeat them is themselves. So <laughs> right. it, uh, eventually, eventually, yeah, you have to come to a point of uh, either uh, such darkness where the character is destroying himself or you have to change the setting or you know, change things around a bit. But yeah, we see. So we see the same thing with superheroes that we did with the, the Western characters is at a certain point we reach point of saturation. So two things happen is one is people start messing around with the setting. And the other thing is people start make uh, the, the characters themselves get darker and darker so that they're more interesting and, and more identifiable. But then at, you get, a, you get to a certain point where the, t- the character is too dark and something has to flip. There's a, a reversal. Uh, uh, so like if, just to sort of wrap up what we've been talking about with Westerns and uh, superheroes, you have the Western, the Western gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, to the, at the point of saturation, it turns into the anti-Western. It turns into a very dark uh, a scenario that people aren't interested in seeing. At the bottom point of it is people are going to the uh, movies to be entertained, not to be edified or not to be lectured at and not to have a dark, dismal time with a character who's just completely reprehensible. So uh, so what happened was you had a flip or a reversal. You took the exact same genre and you just changed the setting like Star Wars or Superman. And now you have all of a sudden you can have this character who's totally pure and perfect again because people don't recognize it as the Western. Uh, but then over time, again, saturation gets in, characters get darker and darker and darker, and then there's going to be a flip or a reversal where all of a sudden people are like, oh, like we have a brand new movie genre, but it's not. It's just the same, the same, <laughs> it's same just, characters, it's same all, plots. We've been, recycl- we've been recycling the same 
yeah. stuff since uh, the beginning. <laughs> and and one question that's relevant is, well, why can't anybody come up with something that's completely original? Why do we always have to recycle the same characters, the same basic plots, the same basic um, scenarios? And the answer is life isn't as complicated as you think it is. Uh, and, and in terms of identifiable struggles that characters can have, there's not that many. You know, you have the sort of classic struggle for redemption. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The classic struggle for revenge. Those are the two classic themes in Westerns that we see in action movies as well. Uh, You have love, the search for love, the search for connection, the search for community, the search for some type of meaningful connection with others. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then there's the fight against evil, uh, whether evil is embodied by, you know, enemies or by you know a, a wilderness or by some type of danger um, those are the classic themes and you can't really get away from them it's hard to come come up with a idea for a movie that's going to be dramatic and have conflict and keep people's interest if you don't touch upon one of those key themes yeah in I know a lot of young writers or writers starting out they always like well I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go to any of the, I'm gonna come up with something new I'm like listen you've got to build a house and there are there's basically about eight or ten Blueprints. You can yeah. you and within those blueprints, you can go crazy. I mean, like obviously, look at all the beautiful buildings that have been created throughout the world. But at the core, the structure still needs a floor, still needs walls, still needs doors, still needs windows in one way, shape, or form to make this work. And within that scope, within that structure, you could do whatever you want. Uh, and that's where I think a lot of young writers fail because they just go off, not thinking that they're not being original. And it's and the house is a good metaphor because the most important thing a house must have is a strong foundation, which nobody sees. You don't see the foundation. So when people think, oh, well, uh, you know, I'm going to do something completely original, um, th- they're possibly uh, going into the process thinking, I don't need a foundation. <laughs> but we all need a foundation. And the fact <laughs> yes. that you can't see it doesn't make it any less important. In fact, it makes it more important. And that's what the, the uh, uh, psychoanalysis and psychology gives you. Because if uh, psychology is a study of human behavior, and if film essentially is just human behavior projected onto screen, well, what's underlying all of that behavior? What are people's motivations? What are their both their conscious and their unconscious motivations? And there's nothing more interesting than a character who thinks he's doing one thing, but is actually doing something else, and then has to realize at a certain point through a, an epiphany or revelation, you know, wh- why they're doing what they're doing. Um, that's part of the foundation of any character is what is the secret foundation to this character's issues and how can it be revealed in a way that doesn't reveal the foundation? Meaning how can I make people understand what this character is going through and what their real inner struggle is by providing symbols and metaphors through some type of outward um, uh, plot or some external conflict. Uh, So the idea is there's internal conflict. That's what the character is dealing with. That's what we as the viewers identify with, but it all, because it's film, it all has to be visualized. It has mm-hmm. to be externalized and objectified in a way that everybody can get, even though they're not psychologists and they're not necessarily doing film analysis. So let's 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 do an experiment here. Can we psychoanalyze uh, one of the more famous uh, heroes of all time, Indiana Jones? 
okay. let's let's psychoanalyze Indiana Jones because because Indiana everyone everyone listening to this has, if they haven't seen Indiana Jones how dare you? Um, <laughs> you got some homework to do. You've got some homework to do. But he's one of the most at least the first two. At least the first, I like the third one. Come on, the third one's pretty good. Yeah, Sean yeah. Connery was good. Yeah, yeah. The, third, the first three, first three, the fourth the last one. Uh, who knows what happened there? But anyway, um, that but was yes, a search for more money. <laughs> and they're doing and apparently that search is continuing because they have I think Harrison I think he just broke a hip or something doing he's 80 now he's doing the next one but you know I, I'll, hope, I hope they're casting him as the mentor character and not the hero because he's too God, old I, to be the hero I mean he's just I mean at a certain point I mean unless you're um, unless you're a character like Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven then you can mm-hmm. be the old the old hero but it's different yeah <laughs> <laughs> much yeah, much much different. much much different. Sorry, so talking about Indiana Jones, um, what how how would you psychoanalyze him and 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 can you pinpoint why so many people love that character? It's an enduring character in a time when there's a lot of characters and, and there was a lot of copycat, you know, archaeology, you know, adventure films made after Indiana Jones. But for whatever reason, and you could say it's Harrison, and you could say it's the writing uh, and the directing. But for you, as on a character psychoanalyst, uh, psycho, uh, psychoanalyst way, what do you think? Um, I think um, it's the producer. I think it was George Lucas who has this sort of wonderful eye for archetypes, and he and he saw it. He I don't know if he read the comic book or how, however he saw that character and said, "Oh, okay, I see this character. He's a cowboy." He's your classic cowboy hero, but he's in a different setting. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm sure George Lucas recognized that and said, oh, oh, I did that with Star Wars and it worked out really, really well. <laughs> I took, took the classic Western hero, changed the setting, changed the scenario a bit. Uh, and, and everybody immediately identifies with this character who's very American. Uh, who's very sort of action oriented, uh, and, and, but but also has a, a very basic sense of honor, uh, and uh, also is uh, very American in the way he does things, which is he does things primarily by himself and does not ask permission or forgiveness. He just does whatever he thinks he should do, oftentimes in a very very violent way. So we as Americans can identify with that character. So he is that classic hero, and he even he even dresses like a cowboy. He with does. His, uh, you know, with his hat and everything. But he, there's also, um, you know, so George Lucas took the Western and put it in outer space for Star Wars. For Indiana Jones, he took the Western and he kind of took these superhero character, uh, characteristics and put them in with him. So first of all, you have this guy who's super good looking and, you know, uh, adventure hero who can do all this stuff, but he's also this brilliant archaeologist, which is, you know, rather unlikely even in a, a, a sort of fantasy scenario. He, and he does seem to have these sort of miraculous powers that Western heroes don't have. So he, he is a little bit more of the classic hero. And he's kind of also an Arthurian hero. He's a knight mm-hmm. errant. He's mm-hmm. going off on these journeys to find things like the Holy Grail. <laughs> I was about to say literally. literally <laughs> he's very much the Percival hero, meaning he's mm-hmm. a pure character, uh, or at least pure in his intentions and his motivations. Uh, and he's he's on a good quest. He's going out there to do something good to re- to redeem himself, but but in doing so, he, he redeems the world. Um, yeah, so, so, so an interesting uh, uh, sort of 
amalgamation of these classic heroes. You have, you know, the Western hero in his costume and his actions and his general kind of approach. And then you have the sort of very classical superhero type of person who has who has all of these superpowers. Uh, and then you also have the Arthurian knight who's who's out on a quest. Um, and he's and he's either rescuing a maiden or he's finding a relic that can save the world or he's defeating some evil enemy like the Nazis. Typically, he's doing all three at once. Yeah, and I I, I always found that if, if we're just a- analyzing just the three Indiana Jones films, the first one and the third one were quests, where the second one was not a quest. It was it was more of he fell upon this scenario and then he's like, I'm gonna go save these kids and I gotta stop what's going on. It wasn't a quest. And I always find in my indie stories, I like a quest because that's what mm-hmm. he's at best, that is that a fair a fair statement? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, to go back to Joseph Campbell, and he, he would say, you know, there are there are lots of ways in which the hero finds himself in an adventure, and sometimes it is a quest, and a herald comes and says, mm-hmm. uh, "Look, the Nazis are going to get this holy ark, and we have to get it before them," uh, or something like that, or the Nazis are going to get the holy grail. So uh, th- that's the very traditional beginning. But then there's also a very sort of classic type of tale where you have the hero, and the hero is sort of doing his own thing, and then maybe something like a deer or something. You know, an apparition comes and he sort of follows it into the wilderness and he he, he twists and turns. And all all of a sudden he turns around and he's in the realm of adventure. He's like, how did I get wind up here? But But now all of a sudden here I am and there's people asking me to help them and they're in desperate need. So it becomes a quest. Uh, He wasn't looking for it. Wasn't directly sort of addressed by a Herald character saying you need to do this. But he just sort of finds himself as Joseph Campbell would say, in full career of an adventure. Uh, and that's very much, you know, Indiana Jones number two. Uh, and, and I love the beginning part because it's very exciting. And, and the, oh, the I love it. And, yeah. everything. But, and it's a wonderful yeah. uh, Steven Spielbergian uh, sequence of action, 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 action. But it's also fulfilling that part of the story, meaning the hero gets lost through no fault of his own. And then when he sort of stands up and says, where am I? Well, you're in an adventure. <laughs> Here you go, Indy. You know, you've got you've got you've got the maiden, you've got the quest, and you've got uh, the villains, and you it's all there for you. Just you know, uh, just have at it. Exactly. Um, now, so what does someone like Sigmund Freud have to teach us about character and story? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I think probably uh, the most useful uh, uh, stuff we get from Freud is this notion that we don't understand ourselves. We think we do, but we really don't. And uh, and when we get frustrated in our lives, it's because we're doing what we think we should be doing, <laughs> and we and, and we have the what we think is the proper motivation, yet things aren't turning out the way we want to, and we're not happy the way we think we should be. And Freud said, well, you have to look much deeper into yourself and you have to look at yourself like a problem, like a like like an algebra problem <laughs> to a certain extent. Say, well, what's going on? Why am I doing these things and not finding happiness? And what wh- why, why don't I seem to understand myself? Uh, and Freud gave us all these tools to try to understand ourselves. So, so for example, like defense mechanisms. Um, Defense mechanisms are things that we do constantly, all the time, to defend our egos in the face of 
uh, either negative information about ourselves or just negative information in general. And we're constantly defending ourselves from this negative information. But in order for the defense to be effective, we have to be completely unaware of what we're doing. So say a defense mechanism like denial, when there's an obvious problem, but you're not aware of it because you're in denial. That's something that translates to film very, very well, where you can have a character and we, the watchers, we, the viewers, are looking at this character and saying, dude, there's, a, there's something horrible that's about to happen. You have to be aware of that. And it's pretty obvious to us, why aren't you seeing it? And it's because they're in denial. And we understand that. And we might not put it in Freudian terms, but we understand, oh, something horrible is gonna happen and this character's totally unprepared for it. And it's like a train wreck about to happen and we're watching it, we can't unwatch it because we've all been in that situation before. And, and, and we've all kind of had that wish is, oh, I wish there was somebody watching me who could say, hey, hey, you, uh, turn <laughs> around, look, look what's gonna happen. You need to prepare yourself. Um, you know, uh, so, uh, things like denial and repression and, uh, some of the more fancy defense mechanisms like reaction formation are very, very, very interesting when we put them into characters because the viewer can see where they're going wrong. And, but at the same time, they're powerless to help that character. Kind of like in, in the movie theater, sometimes we say, Hey, watch out. You, you <laughs> dropped the pistol. You gotta get, get that gun. The guy's going to come. We, we, right. we, we want to warn them. Uh, uh, that's ineffectual. They have to learn for themselves, which is another reason why we identify with these characters is they have to figure out their own weaknesses and then deal with it on their own, just like us. Now the, um, you know, with characters, they, uh, many characters, or uh, most characters work on a conscious level, but we as humans uh, work on a very subconscious level. There's things that motivate and drive us that we honestly, in many ways don't even understand why we do things other than when you do that deep dive and psychoanalyst, psycho, you psychoanalyze yourself or you get therapy or you work it out or it comes out in one way, shape or form through somebody else or another character in your life, let's say, points yeah. it out to you. Like, don't you understand why you, you're pushing everybody away because you were abandoned as a child or something along those lines. Yeah. But to the So can you talk a little bit about the power of using subconscious motivations within character uh, in a story? Sure. Um, so again, it's, it, uh, there's nothing more powerful than seeing a character who's blind to himself and he, he has to desperately become self-aware in order to save his life or in order you know, to, to save someone else's life or uh, in, in order to complete this quest. Um, and again, we identified with that character because we're always in that same situation. Um, so we, uh, it, it gives us the ability as the viewer it gives us a certain amount of power, right? Because usually we're completely blind to our own issues. But when we have somebody else's issues right there on the screen for us to see, we're all, you know, we, we don't know what we're doing it, but we're all psychoanalyzing that character. That's why psychoanalysis and film kind of goes along really well together because the viewer by default becomes a psychoanalyst as they're watching this character. They're privy to information that that character doesn't have because only we can see that character objectively. Nobody can see themselves objectively. So uh, take, for example, uh, a film that I uh, use as examples of like Freudian defense mechanisms mm -hmm. is uh, American Beauty because it's <laughs> literally they hit everyone. <laughs> but there's this one scene which was very, very powerful. There are a lot of powerful scenes in that movie. And the power all comes from this revelation of having a character that doesn't know himself. So when he does or says something that makes him – 
momentarily aware of his own issues it's like a huge revelation and we as the viewers are like oh wow that's pretty pretty cool and pretty deep so there's this one scene so you know the film Kevin of course, Spacey of course, and yeah. Benning, and the, it's one scene where he's having a bit of an argument with his daughter and his daughter calls him out on being a perv on perving on her, her teenage friend and he says uh, Jane you better watch out or you're going to turn into a bitch just like your mother and it just comes out of his mouth and you know his daughter is mortified, and he is mortified. He can't believe he said that to his daughter, and he realized how much he hates his wife. And he didn't really—I don't think he realized that up until the moment where he said those words. Plus, at the same time, he realizes my hatred for my wife and my hatred for myself to a certain extent for being with with this person that I hate and who hates me. It's rubbing off on my daughter. So the worst thing we're doing in this relationship is we're really hurting her. Uh, so he has that revelation, and it's all done in this little bit of of dialogue. And I say it's mostly done through the just the expression on Kevin Spacey's face after he says that. He realizes, oh, my God, I hurt this one person who I don't want to hurt. Uh, what am I doing? Where am I going? When, you know? uh, and, and so, yeah, so that's a great example of a defense mechanism. In this case, the defense mechanism is displacement. When you're angry at one person, but you shout at somebody else, a safe outlet. Um, we all do that all the time. But in film, it's so much more powerful because it's 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 all there for us to see. You know, we say uh, we're all very aware of it, even if we're not talking about terms like displacement and defense mechanism. We know, oh, he's really angry at his wife, but he took it out on his daughter because she touched a nerve by calling him a perv because he is a perv yeah, <laughs> and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, yeah. Uh, uh, that's where I think psychology uh, comes in very, very useful for the viewer, but even more useful for the screenwriter, because <laughs> the screenwriter is the one who has to be very, very explicitly aware of what's going on for their characters and how these little, this little bit of information can come out bit by bit uh, in ways that seem both real to the viewer and also uh, entertaining and you know, uh, keeping them engaged. Now, what is dream work? So dream work is just uh, Freud's term for the process of analyzing dreams. Uh, and he had he, he created a very uh, specific uh, model for doing it. Um, but it's really relatively simple. Uh, you, could, if, you could break it down to, to two ideas. Um, you have the, the dream it's, itself that we experience while we're sleeping. So uh, dream work isn't really for uh, like daydreams those types of fantasies, which are semi-conscious and can be explored just in a, in a sort of regular psychoanalytic way. Because dreams, true dreams, are completely unconscious uh, and they happen while we're asleep. And by the way, 99% of our dreams are never analyzed because we never have any conscious awareness of them. Uh, so for Freud believed that dreams were important. It was our unconscious mind's way of dealing with anxieties and issues that we don't deal with during our waking state. And the two basic uh, 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 principles are that th there's uh, the manifest content of the dream, manifest meaning the clear, that what we actually see, which typically doesn't make a lot of sense. Our dreams tend to be very illogical. And then there is the latent content. Latent means hidden or, or disguised, meaning the true message of the dream, the true sort of idea that the unconscious is trying to deal with or express to ourselves. Uh, and, the, and by analyzing the manifest content, by taking the dream as we experienced it and finding associations for each symbol in the dream, we can uncover the hidden meaning uh, and then hopefully apply that to our lives in some kind of meaningful way. 
Now, what is normative conflict? Okay, so you're, you're, you're jumping to a, a, a different theory, but um, uh, uh, so we have to take one step back to Freud. So Freud um, believed that dreams uh, express some type of neurotic conflict. Neurotic mm-hmm. conflict, uh, so neurotic coming from neuro or the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he means a sort of internal conflict. So there's something we want to do. Let's say for Kevin Spacey in American Beauty, what he wants to do is he wants to nail his daughter's teenage friend, which he <laughs> knows is completely inappropriate and which he probably doesn't even completely um, uh, register with himself. It's a sort of unconscious desire that nevertheless is motivating him at every stage in the movie. Uh, he's that seems to be his primary motivation is to become more attractive to this teenage girl so he can seduce her. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is neurotic conflict, meaning there's one side of him that knows this is wrong. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And knows that he's a bad person and a bad father for wanting to do it. Yet there's this other equally strong side of him, call it the id, call it the libido, um, that desperately wants this and cannot give it up. It's, it's a fantasy that he knows is wrong, but it persists because it has this unconscious power. Um, so, so, so that's what we might say is going on in terms of neurotic conflict. What is normative conflict? Well, Eric Erickson uh studied really with Anna Freud, Freud's daughter. Uh, and he re- when he when Eric Erickson moved to America from Vienna in the 40s, he realized that most people didn't really and most people in America didn't understand Freud. Uh, that almost everything was lost in translation. And one of the main reasons uh, things were lost in translation, why people didn't understand Freud, was because it was such a sexual theory. Mm-hmm. Everything was sexualized. Right. So, and, and in Freudian theory, there is no re- neurotic conflict without some type of libido, without some type of sexual drive. Because that's, in Freudian theory, that's where all energy comes from. It comes from this basic life urge, this libido, this need to reproduce, and therefore this need to have sex. Mm-hmm. Um, Erickson said, well, all that stuff is true Freudian theory, but if people in America can't talk about sex, this was like 1950, if Americans can't talk (laughs) about sex, how are they going to understand the theory? They're just going to reject the theory outright, which is what people were doing. But he said, you know what? You can take these same basic issues that Freud was talking about and you can unsexualize them. You can talk about them in less sexual ways. So he said, you can take neurotic conflict, this internal conflict. And instead of saying, oh, this is about libido versus guilt or id versus superego in these very technical ways, you could say everybody is always struggling. Everybody is conflicted. Why? Well, we want to be normal people and lead normal lives, and we want to be true to ourselves. Yet at the same time, everybody in our environment is putting these demands on us. Our parents want us to be one thing and our teachers want us to be another thing. And our siblings expect this of us and our wives and our girlfriends and boyfriends and Everybody expects something from us, and those Mm -hmm. expectations mean that we have to become the person that they want us to become, but we also want to stay true to ourselves, and that's a true conflict, and there's nothing necessarily sexual about it. So that's what we mean by normative conflict. It's neurotic conflict, same exact thing, but not in sexual terms, and it is also more about self-identity. How do I understand myself? How do I define myself while at the same time satisfying other people's expectations for me. Now, I'm not sure if we've covered this or not, but what are some of the archetypes for plot according to Carl Jung? 
Okay. Well, it'd be it'd really be more to have according to me, because Carl Jung never really wrote about movies or anything. Sure. Um, and he wrote about archetypes, but not necessarily archetypes of plot. So, uh, but, but it's the same idea. Meaning, if you have a, a set of character traits for a, uh, for a certain type of character, and we call the amalgamation of those character those characteristics an archetype, then we could do the same thing for a theme. Meaning. Basic, basic characteristics of a theme become an archetypal theme or a classic theme. Uh, uh, and, and so if we take that and apply that to movies, we mean that if you have a character who an uh, audience needs to follow and identify with and be engaged with for 90 to 120 minutes, possibly longer. Nowadays, we have, you know, uh, a, a television characters that have, you know, a thousand hours, you know, well, how are we going to... How how are we going to stick with that character? And it's all about motivation. It's all about what is motivating this character, what is holding and what is holding them back. What's their conflict? What's their struggle? Uh, and if we think about it that way, there's only a handful of archetypal plots. There's the revenge plot, uh, uh, and we and we all can identify with that. Uh, there's the redemption plot of the character did some bad things in the past or has led a life which was not completely pure but now they have a chance to redeem themselves by doing something good and pure for others there's the love plot of you know simply character a character who's in love but there's some type of obstacle that they have to overcome in order to uh uh win the person uh, that they adore there's the classic quest motivation uh, uh um you know so so there's you know if you think about it there's only maybe a half a dozen different plots or uh, different types of motivations that work and and can extend a ca- interest in a character for more than you know 100 minutes or so so that's what we mean by the archetypal plot and it, it really ties in with the archetype of the character, meaning an archetypal character is going to have an archetypal theme or an archetypal plot that's driving them along. The two aren't are, are inseparable. Now, um, I love this. I, I saw this in your book, and I just had to ask you about it. What are some archetypes in the age of narcissism? Because my okay. God, we are in the age of narcissism. Yeah, well, I mean, so in in psych- psychoanalysis. We have uh, the metaphor of the mirror, now, you know, the idea of looking at oneself, and we, uh, and oftentimes we get confused because we think we're looking through a window. We think we're looking at other people, but we're looking at a mirror. We're looking at ourselves, and I would say that sort of confusion, um, uh, which is narcissism. So, so, so what was narcissus's? Um, a mistake while well, he looked at a reflection of himself and became hypnotized or entranced by that image of himself. But he had no idea that he was looking at himself. He thought he was looking at this beautiful young man. Uh, and the thing that he was unaware of, the reason why this image was so uh, hypnotizing was because it was him, but in a way it wasn't him. And that's what was hip- hypnotic about it. And we all find ourselves in that situation right now with modern media. We all carry around you know, these things, these phones, mm-hmm. and you, you look at it when it's not on, you're like, oh, it's just a mirror. Uh, <laughs> we turn it on, but when we turn it on, that's when we lose uh, the accuracy of what it really is. Because we think we're looking at the outside world. We think we're looking at other people's web pages and other people's comments and other people's opinions, but it's all in reflection of, who we are. Uh, so, uh, I, I don't want to get too far off the point, but the the, ba- the the one basic question everybody has is, well, if all of this media is helping us to be informed, helping us to learn about what's going on in the world and what's going on with other people, why is wh- why are we the most confused we've ever been? 
why do people seem to not understand uh, when a person, say, like the president of a certain country, uh, is a complete a complete narcissist and only cares about himself and has no <laughs> real sort of personal morals or uh, um, virtues of his own? Like, why why does the majority of a country seem to not? E- either not care about that or not be aware of it or just accept it as being like, well, that's okay. Everybody's like that. And it's because we're, we, we think we're getting more information, but we're getting less information because all we're doing is just looking at ourselves, looking for uh, validation of our own opinions, looking for people who repeat what we already believe. And, and, and this, sort of uh, we're existing in an echo chamber of our own reflections and our own thoughts and the fact that other people reflect what we're saying or what we're thinking or what we want that doesn't make it less of a mirror it just makes it a more powerful mirror a magical mirror because it really does create that illusion of i'm looking outwards but in reality we're just seeking our own reflection (laughs) and that's why we have less information because nobody is looking for the truth. We're just looking for what we think we already know and for validation, confirmation about that. All right. So how do we apply that, apply that to the age of narcissism? Well, the age of narcissism has to do with a modern time when the things that we used to revere, what um, Alfred, was it Adler? I'm trying to think. Uh, It was um, Otto Rank, I believe. Uh, He called, uh, called it the object of devotion. And he believed in existential psychology, the psychology of existence, he believed that we all need an object of, of devotion. We need some, something outside of ourselves to devote ourselves to, something pure, something good, something uh, to motivate us, and something that we can aspire to. And for all of human history, that has been the spiritual, that has been God and the different versions of God. You know, uh, just like the hero has a thousand faces, so too does God have a thousand faces. So for, for most of us, uh, we found that in the heavens and we found that in God. But then we get into the 20th century and we have all these smart people writing books and we have Nietzsche saying God is dead. And we have a movement away towards spirituality because it's not logical. It's not <laughs> rational. It's right. not based on what we think we know, what we, the, the narcissists think we know and understand about the world. So we need a different answer. Kind of like similar to what we were, when we were talking about archetypes like the Western hero mm-hmm. and super, the superheroes, meaning when a culture reaches a point of saturation with something, they need to move on. They have to change it. So our culture, I, to a certain extent, whether these are saturated with God or for, what, for various reasons found God no longer meaningful in the way God used to be meaningful. So we have to find other things. And we, we search outwardly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. We search outwardly for heroes. We search outwardly for causes. We search outwardly for uh, virtues and issues that we can identify with. But we're fooling ourselves because we're really just looking at mirrors. We think we're looking outwardly but we're looking inwardly and anything that's anything that's a screen is ultimately a mirror because the only way we understand those characters and those stories um, is by associating it with ourselves. So the age of narcissism is this age when lots of people think 
they have the answers and they understand why they're right and why everybody else is wrong. And they just live this life of solipsistic self-satisfaction where they think they have all the answers. They know they have all the answers and they're frustrated with everybody else because they don't seem to be respecting the fact that they have all the answers. But at the end of the day, they're just narcissists. And they really don't understand other people, and uh, and they can't because instead of really trying to understand others, they're just getting more and more reflections of themselves. As a as a a person a student of psychology, um, how do you see the society as we've got as as, as the last hundred and twenty years uh, that we've had? media as we kind of know it today from the beginning of the film industry and and radio and television and now computers, internet and all that stuff. How do you think our stories are affecting our society as far as where we're moving towards? Because we just talked a, a bit about the age of narcissism and you can you can kind of start seeing and you can see this in the 60s and 70s where the the, the stories from Hollywood were dark taxi driver easy rider i mean these are you couldn't even couldn't even conceive of something like that being released today by a major studio um where do you think this is going for us as a society and also in in just general american films um well, it's it's interesting i mean it's, Film definitely turned darker in the 60s and 70s. Part of that had to do with the rating system. So prior to the rating system, every movie was was a family movie. Fam, you know, <laughs> people went to the movies as families and they saw movies together. So you know, a movie like Psycho was seen by tons of you know two year olds, and people started to realize like, oh, okay, well, this is probably not we want, right. Uh, um, if we want movies to sort of progress as an art form. We are going to have to segregate, you know, children from it. And at the same time, if we want movies to keep on capturing people's attention and make it more interesting, it has to be different from television. Television is uh, uh, is for the family, so we have to create movies that aren't necessarily for the fa- family. So the idea of making very dark movies with very dark themes and adding lots of curse words and nudity and sexuality, a lot of that had to do with the struggle to you know, to keep up with television or to compete with television and uh, cinema trying to redefine itself as an adult art form, as opposed to sort of just mass entertainment, which television had become. Um, And at the the same time, we saw uh, uh, in America, certainly, a much more critical view of America itself. So the old Westerns, where you had this classic character who was maybe a little bit dark because he was violent and he used violence for his own means and he used violence uh, uh, in, a, in a unilateral way. He didn't ask permission. He just kill, <laughs> killed everybody who thought he should be killed. Um, people be, in America became a little bit dubious about that. I mean, because at the, at the time, you know, we were in Vietnam and what mm-hmm. the hell were we doing there? And nobody really seemed to know for sure. All we knew was that we as Americans went there and just started killing everybody left and right because we thought that was what you know we should be doing. And that reflected not just on America as society, but on, uh, on the thing that represents American society. And at that time, certainly by the 60s, it was the Western hero. There was nobody, uh, there was no other character that represented America more than the Western hero. And that's why the Western hero became darker because in us. Again, if we, if we uh, uh, apply the notion of narcissism, that when we look at a screen, we think we're looking at something else, 
but what we're seeing is a reflection of ourself. If that mirror is not an accurate reflection, you know, if our feelings about ourselves are dark and dubious and we don't know if we're doing the right thing, in fact, if we're pretty sure we're doing the wrong thing, then that mirror reflection uh, in the cinema has to change. It has to reflect that. So uh, that that Western hero who represented America became darker and darker and darker and darker until it reached a point where nobody wanted to see it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, uh, and that was why, you know, it became the superhero. And then the same thing is happening with the superhero, uh, coming darker and darker and darker until we reach the point where we're not going to recognize that character anymore and it's going to flip and change. Um, so cinema, like television, uh, is this reflection of ourselves on a societal level. Uh, and it is, it is very, very true that if you want to get a sense of where a country is, where a culture is, look at their media. Look at look at the mirrors that they're using to reflect themselves and, and see what that tells us. And I would say, you know, right now, our media, uh, uh, certainly for young people, is telling us, you know, well, the only way we're going to get out of this mess is through some type of superhero intervention. <laughs> some type of divine power needs to come uh, and just change everything because we can't rely on people. If you look at you know your typical super superhero movie, the people that represent average adults tend to be either corrupt or downright evil or just completely helpless and uninformed. They don't know what's going on. It's only the superhero and usually the adolescent characters that are allied with the superhero who understand the danger, who understand the uh, limits of society, and who know well the only thing that can save us is some type of superhero. Possibly that's why, you know, uh, in, in our uh, not our last election, but the previous election, we weren't really looking for a realistic leader for our country. We were looking for some type of fantasy, for some type of non-person who who, who fulfilled mm-hmm. fantasies of, you know, of being this powerful superhero who's going to change everything. Uh, it didn't work out. That's a really interesting way of, of looking at it, um, because you're right, right now we are if we're looking at if media is our mirror, then superheroes are the dominant force of media that we have in in, in our stories uh, right now, in, especially in cinema. Uh, I mean, if you go back and look at the '80s, I mean, Jesus, you got you know Arnold, you've got Sly, you've got Rambo, you've got uh, Commando, you've got you know Chuck Norris, you've got this America kick ass kind of energy uh, that was throughout the '80s. Uh, you know, yep. that's. And that's where the action hero, as we know it today, kind of was born. But even then, they were soup, they were almost cartoonish versions of mm-hmm. like even now today, you know, you know, Liam Neeson is an action hero, you yeah. know, you know, but in the 80s, uh, there would be no way a Liam Neeson um, or let alone a female action hero where now that's doable. But back then it was all muscle bound cartoon versions of human ex- exaggerated versions of ourselves. And I, I think for whatever reason, that was something our society had to go through. Mm-hmm. The, the Western hero, as we knew him, became very dark and he came to represent the things that we hated about ourselves. You know, the, the violence, the solipsism, the inability to see other people's point of view. Um, and uh, so we had to sort of, th- that hero had to be reborn in a new setting. Uh, and it became very, I think one of the reasons it was very militaristic character was because in, 
uh, darkening the Western hero. Uh, we did it in a way that was very reflective of what was going on in Vietnam. And in doing so, we kind of cast a pall upon another type of hero, uh, 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 the soldier hero, the warrior hero, which is even more ancient than the Western hero. Uh, and I think as a culture, we needed to sort of recover from that. And we need to say, you know what? Soldiers are good. The American soldier is inherently a good person who wants to do good things. And yes, he's frustrated by officers who want him to do the wrong thing or by, you know, the government. You know, there's always that, that, represent, that, that representation of corruption. But the U.S. soldier is a good man. He is a Rambo. He is a, 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 a what, what was the Schwarzenegger one? A commando. A commando yeah. he, and predator and yeah. he, uh, all of those. The American soldier is good and we can trust him to do the right thing. We needed to reaffirm that to ourselves after Vietnam and after you know that whole period, dark period of dark self-reflection. Uh, and officer and gentleman as well. Uh, not as a superhero, but but definitely a positive light on a yeah. On, you know, the, the military. Um, Top Gun. Yeah, well, I mean, Jesus, Top Gun. I mean, that's, that was, yeah. I, I, there's, there's as much testosterone in one, in one movie ever is mm-hmm. Top Gun and probably 300. I mean, there's just so much testosterone <laughs> running through those films. It's not even funny. Um, and, and a lot of the 80s action films, Lethal Weapons. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show. All that kind of stuff. It was it was it was an interesting time, but those films wouldn't play today. Uh, not in the same way. Uh, yeah. society I mean, just I, has changed. I, I noticed their uh, uh, Top Gun Two is coming out. Uh, but he's the I, mentor I now. It, but he's the mentor now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so because he's a bit old to be playing that hero character. Um, so yeah, so I'm curious to see how it does because I think we are in a, in, a, in a bit of a different place. We're not really as open to these unilaterally good American heroes as we used to be. So I would be curious to see, you know, how that movie does and how it handles uh, the problem of American identity. Which is yeah, and and also don't don't ever underestimate the power of nostalgia. Uh, <laughs> that that illness that we have is because I'm like uh, I was there when Top Gun came out, so I I'm the first in line to see it because I want to go back and live relive my youth, and that's yeah. I think Hollywood's been doing that now for thirty forty years. I yeah, think. <laughs> you know, it, I mentioned before the problem with originality that there is essentially no truly original character type, and there is no essentially new original type of plot. But at the same time, you got to use something, <laughs> something original, a new setting, a new idea, a new catchphrase, something. And it does seem that Hollywood has just gotten stuck in just uh, recapitulating, regurgitating its own archetypes over and over and over again, possibly because the foreign market is so important now. And arguably, is the foreign market is more important than the American market in terms of you know, making a, a big film successful. Right, and I think com- combining um, genres, genre, uh, you know, crashing genres together, like mm-hmm. the western and the science fiction film with Star Wars, and that's when you start, you know, mashing up all these kind of different genres. That does um, make things a little bit more interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, uh, what was the? Um, oh God, uh, there's just been so many. But like when when you bring the superheroes down, Watchmen. When you like mm-hmm. when you watch when you brought the superhero down to 
to the, to the ground level and they, they have problems and mm-hmm. they're, some of them are asses and some of them are rapists and some of them are really good and drunks. And that was a, a combination that made it a very interesting, <laughs> made it more interesting than just, haha, I'm Superman. I'm here to save the day. Yeah. I mean, the good thing about the, the maturation of any genre is it gets more complex. So like, like when food starts to spoil the beginning of that process is a, Complexity, meaning it becomes more complex, like you know, a, a, a dark cheese, or a, a, a more <laughs> complex and interesting than a hard cheese or a light cheese. But that's because it's beginning to rot. <laughs> so the first sign of rot is the darkening of the characters, and the and and the plots becoming uh, a, a a bit more wiry, meaning a bit a bit more sort of complex and over the, all over the place and unexpected things happening and that's a sign of a genre beginning to uh beginning to rot beginning to uh, uh the, the audience is getting saturated with that so they're trying to figure out ways of making it more complex and more interesting but it is the very first beginning of the end interesting that's a i love that analogy i love that rotting analogy is like this the beginning starts to get complex and then it just you can't eat it anymore <laughs> after a certain point uh and i'm gonna ask you a couple questions to ask all my guests um what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether uh, in your industry or in life? Um, okay. Hmm. Think about that for a moment. I'm thinking probably uh, it has to do with my process as a writer. And I, I did, I, I, you know, I was interested in writing screenplays for a long time and I, and I wrote novels and now uh, it took me a long time to find a voice and to find what I'm good at. And it wasn't, it's not really what I originally wanted to do. I originally wanted to be a, you know, what I would consider a creative writer, to write screenplays, novels, stories, things like that. And it took me a long time to realize that my voice really is in nonfiction. Uh, uh, And I think probably that's relevant to anyone who's a writer. We we, we begin the process thinking, oh, I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to be doing that. But I think for most of us, uh, it's a process of self-discovery. And the thing that is revealed to us is that what we thought we were good at or what we thought we would be good at is not it. Uh, kind of like um, a typical hero story where a hero goes on sort of adventure after adventure after adventure. And in the process, they learn about themselves so that by the end of the process, yes, they've had a victory and they did what they set out to do. But the journey was by far more important and more elucidating than the end. Uh, so uh, when I'm working on a book now, it's not so much about me thinking, oh, is this going to bring me to the level of success that I'm looking for? But it's more about, am I being as creative as I can be, even though this is nonfiction? Uh, because my goal now is is to say, well, there's nothing. There's no rule that says you can't be very, very creative mm-hmm. in writing nonfiction. In fact, you know, if we look uh, at Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, their nonfiction was incredibly creative. And I think yes. Yeah, so so uh, uh, that might be useful, hopefully, for other writers or filmmakers or anyone really in uh, a creative pursuit. Is you have to give yourself time to find your voice, and then when you do find your voice, you have to be accepting of that. You know, you have to say like, well, you know, I I don't want to be that type of writer, or I don't want to be that type of director, or you know, I want to do stuff that I think is cool. Is that really you? 
is that where your strength lies? Is that the type of story you're good at telling, or is that the story you want to tell? <laughs> you know, right. so it, it's it's a process of self discovery. Right. I mean, I wanted to be a wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins, but that just uh, not a thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. you know, and again, we go back to this idea of the hero. You know, we have heroes in movies, but we also have heroes and mentors in real life. And I think you know, most young people starting out, they find someone like, oh, I want to be Steven Spielberg, or I want to be George Lucas, or I want to be, you know, this famous writer. And we we use these heroes as templates for our own lives, but our our choice of selection is not very comforting. We're we're looking at the most talented and the most successful people ever. And we're saying, why can't I be like them? And it takes a long time for us to, for, for me to like give ourselves a break and be like, well, you're not going to be Steven Spielberg. You're not going to be even Steven Soderbergh. You're not going <laughs> to, that, that's not who you are, but you can do great work and you can, you know, love your work and you can do great, interesting things. If you find your voice, if you, and if you allow your voice to be heard. You know what the funny thing is that I think George Lucas and Spielberg wanted to be Kurosawa, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and 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 Coppola they wanted to be Kurosawa, but they's like ah, I can't be Kurosawa. Well, I guess we'll just be ourselves, and yeah. <laughs> and it worked out okay for them. <laughs> it's, it's a part a part of growing up is figuring out who you are or where your strength lies, and it's a bit sad, but yes, resigning yourself to the fact that you're not going to be this dream character based on fantasy that you were trying to be when you were 13 years old. Uh, When you're 23, you have to find a new hero and find a new mentor and redefine yourself. And we have to do that at every age of life or else we're just going to be constantly, you know, defeating ourselves. And what are three of your favorite films of all time? Okay. The uh, first one that always comes to mind is The Searchers. You know, John yeah. Ford, 1956, John, John Wayne. And I love that movie for so many reasons. Uh, but one reason is you know, what we were talking about before. We were talking about how Westerns, certainly in the 50s, 60s, uh, represented the American character and uh, was a mirror to American society. And in The Searchers, John Ford did something that was really fearless. He took John Wayne, who was identified as the American hero, so strongly that people like every, everybody thought that John Wayne was a war hero. And he was a he didn't go to war. He, he, his, his career was just taking off. He didn't go to war. He stayed behind while everybody else fought. But nevertheless, he was on all these war movies and people always considered him the quintessential American hero of, of his age. But he wasn't. So John Ford said, I want to tell this story. It's a classic American story, but it's very dark because we have a character who's a racist. And when his daughter, not daughter, when his niece is abducted by these uh, Comanches, his goal is at first to rescue her, but then it's to kill her. He wants to kill her because she's living among the Indians. She's, you know, she's gone native. And the only way that he could rest with that is if he killed her by his own hands. He's a very, very dark character. Mm -hmm. His quest is to kill a little girl. Who is his nephew, his niece? How do you tell that story? And how do you cast the quintessential American hero in that story? Very difficult. Uh, but uh, John Ford was able to pull it off. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And one of the greatest, most visually stunning movies ever made, and one of mm-hmm. the most powerful movies ever made. So, uh, you know, I, I always go back to the searchers and say, like, 
wow, <laughs> hard to make a better movie than that. Sure. It's hard to argue, argue like people like what's the greatest movie ever made? And of course, you know, Citizen Kane, whatever, whatever you like. But The Searchers is John Ford, arguably the greatest director of all time. John okay. Wayne, certainly the greatest Western hero of all time. Uh, that's a pretty strong pair. Um, okay, uh, another film. Uh, let me let me think for a moment. After the searchers, it gets a little bit harder, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't want to say John Ford again. Um, hmm. Well, uh, 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 just because. Uh, first of all, this list of like three greatest things—it's it's always going to be changing. Oh, of course, of course. Just, just right now, just today, yeah. today. Um, right now, I'm, I'm uh, thinking about the movie *Pan's Labyrinth* because oh, so uh, I, I'm, I'm writing about it and classic movie by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, and he, again, he's doing something somewhat similar where he's taking a fairy tale, the story the fairy tale about the young girl who's coming of age and she has a wicked stepfather and there's a, a you know, a sort of a fairy character and we don't know whether it's good or evil. So it's a, a classic fairy tale, but he, Rather than avoiding the darkness that we see in the sort of classic Grimm's Brothers fairy tales, he delves into the darkness and mm-hmm. gets darker and darker and darker. But at the same time, he never loses that fairy tale quality of it. And we never lose the sort of innocence of the girl. And we never stop identifying with her. So it's just mm-hmm. a wonderful thing to pull off. Where how can you how can you tell a fairy tale that's true to fairy tales, but at the same time is excessively dark and terrifying? And, you know, re- really sort of, you know, um, brings up these questions about, you know, human nature and uh, things like that. So, you know, when a film can do can be dark and light at the same time, that to me is kind of like uh, you know, an, an impressive thing to pull off. So uh, I really enjoyed that. Let me try to think of a of another film. Well, I'll just take again, this is just stuff that I've recently seen and was impressed by. But I was very impressed by 1917. Mm, um, which was just visually stunning. Uh, so it has that sort of spectacle aspect of cinema. But it t- tells a simple story where you're basically cu- following these two characters and then this one character to the end. And it gets darker and darker and darker. But because there is a basic heroism to the character that we all can identify with, and he's just a man who's given a mission and he needs to get it done. <laughs> it's very simple. It's very simple. simple motivation, a very simple story, but it gets very, you know, it, it gets into the complexities of the characters uh, in a way that, you know, wonderful. And again, it's, it's, it's mixing a darkness with light uh, in, in a way that can be um, inspirational for the viewer. And I was very impressed by that film. And now where can people find you and uh, your books? Um, well, my books are all you know out there. If you go to Amazon.com or McFarlandPub.com. You'll find uh, uh, most of my books. Uh, me personally, I'm a psychology professor at William Patterson University in New Jersey, and looking forward to going back and teaching uh, regular in-person classes mm-hmm. this fall. Everything was online for a while. Um, uh, uh, I, I do have a, a book uh, that just came out. And it's called Media Environments in the Mind. And it deals a lot with, you know, when I was talking before about narcissism and the notion of all that all media is a mirror and how do we um, understand ourselves at a time when we're constantly being reflected in a million ways. Uh, so that's the sort of academic book that I just came out. But I also am uh, uh, 
just got a contract for a second edition of uh, Psychology for Screenwriters, uh, which will have a lot more information about writing for genre. Bill, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been uh, it's been a, a, a journey down the rabbit hole uh, speaking to you today. So I, I do appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. I want to thank William so much for coming on the show and dropping his knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so much, William. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get his book, Psychology for Screenwriters, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 720. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. 